Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. My name is Alex. I am the lead pastor here at Courtright Church, and we want to welcome you to our online Easter service. Let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in the reading of your word? Help us to see Jesus today, risen from the dead and alive forevermore. Enable us to grasp his grace and his truth and lead us more and more into the hope of his resurrection. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. This morning we're going to read from the Gospel according to John and from the 20th chapter of that Gospel. We're going to read a story after the resurrection of Jesus has taken place. And I'm going to give you a chance to grab a Bible uh, or to pull it up on your screen. John is the fourth book of the New Testament, and it's one of the life stories of Jesus that we call Gospels, which means good news. So we're going to read John 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. I was at No Frills a few days ago. It seems, it seems like a lot of our stories these days revolve around grocery stores. Some of the few real life experiences we're having, I guess. Anyway, I was at No Frills on Silver Creek and there was this guy who was rushing around the store with his shopping cart at a breakneck speed. I don't know why he was in such a hurry. He seemed upset. Something maybe was going on in his life. But as he was rushing around the store, he wasn't keeping any kind of social distance. And he was sputtering. He was breathing heavily. And he was coming up behind people because he was in such a hurry and breathing down their backs, it seemed to me, and cutting people off all over the place. It's amazing how we see things differently these days with everything going on in the world. As I looked at this guy rushing around no frills, I could feel my blood pressure going up. And I imagined, in my mind, I imagined like an aura of droplets around his head. You know, these droplets 
they talk about how the coronavirus is transmitted as we emit them through our sneezes, our coughing, our breathing even. So the threat of the virus is something we're aware of. These days we're more sensitive to coughing, to closeness. And as I prepared to preach this week, I saw the physical side of the resurrection like I'd never seen it before. Distance and closeness, absence and presence, emptiness and fullness. And at the very heart of all that, uh, in its tension and, and in all the expectation, the life of Jesus animating everything as he does through his resurrection everything revolving around him. Because as we remember on Easter morning, most of all, Christ is risen. Okay, I have to stop right there because I was preparing myself for that moment when I would say Christ is risen and I would hear nothing back. As some of you know, at Courtright and a lot of churches do this, uh, we have a practice on Easter morning and in the season of Easter that follows of having one person, usually the person at the front, uh, but it can be done individually anytime over coffee hour or in your everyday life. One person says Christ is risen and the response is he's risen indeed. I miss that right now. I miss that because you're not here. Christ is still risen, but you are absent. I can't hear your voices. I'd wondered about asking Justin to do the response, but I think a single voice from behind the camera, that's weird, maybe even a little creepy, and creepy Easter is not what we were after this year. So I'm going to go ahead and say Christ is risen anyway, despite not hearing that response, and I trust that you will respond wherever you are, from your couch or by writing it as a comment on social media or on YouTube. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. And even if you find that word indeed a little odd and old-fashioned, which it is, and I've had some discussions with our youth over the years about that, I encourage you to say it. And we're going to talk more about the word indeed in a few minutes. So here in John 20, we see that on the first Easter morning, Mary Magdalene and some others went to the tomb where they had put the body of Jesus and they found the tomb empty. And then they started to hear rumors. Two men said they had walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and even that they had eaten with him. Then John, here in his version of the story, shows us the disciples behind locked doors, afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're they're playing it safe. But one of them was missing. Thomas was not with them. We don't know why. It's strange that a guy with a reputation for doubt would have risked going outside because they were wanted men. Still, it turned out to be bad timing for Thomas because he missed something absolutely incredible. In the passage right before what we read, Jesus showed up in that room. He spoke to the disciples. He said, peace be with you. He showed them his hands and his sides still wounded with these marks of suffering. He had a physical body. He was with them. And then he breathed on them. Imagine all those glorious divine droplets 
the Holy Spirit coming through all of it, through the, the breath of Christ. But Thomas missed it. When he got back, he didn't believe them after they told him what had happened, even though he must have wondered, he must have found it pretty amazing that all 10 of those disciples would have agreed that this had happened, that they were on the same page when they had so rarely been in agreement like that before. Still, Thomas kept his distance. He was skeptical. This morning, I want us to focus on Jesus coming close. Christ is risen, but he doesn't fly off to heaven. He comes close. Last year on Easter Sunday morning, Tony Beer and I had a moment. As part of the sermon, we demonstrated the man hug in all of its awkwardness. A man hug is when two men who maybe aren't entirely comfortable hugging each other don't quite get it right, maybe knock into each other a little bit. There's an awkwardness to it, for sure. That's a man hug. But this year, there are no hung, hugs at all. I would, I would settle for an awkward hug from one of you, for sure, this morning. But if you go back earlier in this chapter, and this is the reason that, that we had a man hug during the Easter Sunday sermon last year, Mary actually tries to hug Jesus, and he says no to her. Some funny preachers, funnier than me anyway, have pointed out that by doing that, Jesus sets a precedent of practicing social distancing. But most of all, the Easter story is not about distance. It's about coming close. It's about Jesus coming close to us. It's about how he covers the distance between us and how he changes us with his life-changing grace and truth. At the end of our reading from this morning, John tells us that he wrote this book of the Bible so that we would believe in Christ as the Son of God and we would receive new life. So you might wonder why then would John tell us this story about Thomas and his doubts? Why wouldn't he just tell stories of people encountering the risen Christ with joy and immediate acceptance I think John does that quite deliberately, and he does it because he knows we have doubts, and in a way, he wants to normalize our doubts. He wants us to understand that God welcomes our questions and our doubts. God makes up the distance even when we're wondering, when we're unsure, when we're not ready to come close. He approaches us through Jesus. He wants to take away all the absence, all the emptiness that we're feeling these days and to fill us up with his love. And we see that happening here in the passage we read in three ways. First of all, Jesus opens a locked door. Secondly, Jesus opens a locked mind. And finally, Jesus opens himself up. He offers Thomas his body and he offers all of us himself and the hope of his resurrection. So first then, Jesus opens a locked door. If you read the whole of John 20, you'll see that that detail about the door being locked is repeated twice. It's repeated in verse 19 and in what we read in verse 26. 
John does that because he wants to make it really clear that the disciples weren't seeing a vision, that they weren't having a group hallucination together. It's always been easy for people to dismiss or to downgrade the historical truth of the resurrection and to turn it into something that's merely an idea or a symbol, something that sounds less crazy and more socially acceptable. After all, we're skeptical too, right? We say that seeing is believing. We want evidence, we demand it, and so the Bible provides it. You'll find accounts from eyewitnesses in Scripture, testimony, at least 11 times Christ appeared to other people. Hundreds of them saw him, they heard him, they touched him, and thousands more believed, and this good news, this gospel spread like wildfire. Some of them wrote about it, and that's why we have a New Testament. All of that to get out the word that Christ is risen that he is risen indeed. What does that word indeed really mean? Well, literally, indeed means indeed, in fact, in truth. A deed is an action or an event. So when we say Christ is risen indeed, we're saying we believe this actually happened as a real event in history. And that makes all the difference to us because then it's true, not as an idea, but as real presence, as the hope of real reunion, of real togetherness with God and with our loved ones. Christ is risen. I can almost hear you saying it. He is risen indeed. Now you can make a historical case for the resurrection, but you still can't prove it. Jesus opened a locked door first, but then he had to open a closed mind. He could have done that instantly, just as he passed through the locked door. He could have forced Thomas to believe in him. If Jesus showed up in all his glory and said to us, believe in me and obey, how would you respond? Probably like cars on a highway. You know what happens when a police cruiser pulls onto the 401, right? Suddenly everyone gets all religious about the speed limit. Maybe you've seen this happen. Suddenly everyone's driving right on the speed limit, 110 miles, kilometers rather, per hour. And no one dares to pass the cop until, that is, until they turn off and then Boom, the speedometers shoot back up to 120, 130, or even higher. We don't like to be told what to do, especially by those in authority over us. Anyone have teenagers at home these days? Is it just me, or are they around a lot more than they used to be? Any parents or teens struggling with that? So God doesn't come after us like an authoritarian parent. He wants us to respond to him freely. And that's how Jesus approaches us. As a parent, I may know the answer to many of the questions my children have, but if I were just to give them the answer every time they had a question, then I'm going to miss out on the opportunity I'll have to listen to them, to sit with them, 
to build a relationship with them. Jesus doesn't start here by saying to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. In verse 27, Jesus issues an invitation to Thomas. He says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Now, can you imagine the intensity, the astonishment, the wonder of that moment? You can read that quickly, but I think the only way to grasp what was taking place is to pause and to imagine the silence, to imagine the holiness of that moment in that room. Jesus was offering Thomas intimacy rather than instruction. And Thomas must have been amazed. Jesus knew exactly what he needed. How could Jesus have known that? I think in that moment, Thomas realized that Jesus had been with him all along, that Jesus really knew him. We need to know that too. And we need that right now, especially. I had one day this week when I was online with other people in Zoom meetings and Google meetings for over eight hours. It was terrible. Now, I want to say quickly that I am so grateful for the technology that allows us to continue meeting together through this pandemic. And we've heard from many of you about how much it means to you to be able to come together like this through our online worship services. And we've also had an amazing response to these new online neighborhood groups that we've created over the past two weeks. But it is not the same thing as being with people physically. I came across a quote this past week from a therapist who described online meetings as exhausting in a sneaky kind of way because it's absence disguised as presence. It's like our minds are being tricked into the idea that we're together when our bodies know that we're not. And it creates a dissonance, a tension, and that's what's exhausting. It's a spiritual issue too. We need the real bodily presence of other people to have them see us, touch us, know us. And yet other people, as much as we need them, still can't satisfy our deepest longings. Another person can't know you well enough to do that. They, they won't know everything about you. You will inevitably hide things from them. They'll say, they may say that they're always going to be there for you, but they can't possibly. They won't be able to fulfill that. Only Jesus can make that promise to us. Only Jesus can be with us all the time, loving us with an unchanging love. And so your soul needs the presence of Christ. That's what opens the mind of Thomas here. And even more, I think it melts his heart. When, opened, when, when locked doors open, it's a miracle in history. But when our mind and our will become open to God, it's a matter of the heart. 
And for that to happen, we have to believe that God knows us and that he really does love us and want the best for us no matter what. We have to believe that Christ is risen. Thomas may be famous for his doubt. That's probably the one thing a lot of people may really know about Thomas, but the truth is that he was a believer like few others. He was the very first disciple to say out loud that Jesus is both Lord and God. It's the greatest profession of faith anywhere in the Bible, and and Thomas was the first one to make it in history. That confession, that profession of faith, recognizes Jesus as Lord of the universe and as God himself. He's no longer the rabbi of the disciples, their teacher, their friend, and he's not even their savior, the one who can rescue them. He's Lord and God of all. Second, it's a personal profession. It's a very personal relationship that Thomas is showing us when he says those words. He says, my Lord, he says, my God. The possessive tells us that that Thomas wants to be close to Jesus, that he wants to believe in Jesus. And because of that, he's going to have a new relationship with him. And because of the truth of what he said, he knows that Jesus is at the center of his life and that the only possible response to him, the right response, is obedience. How do you become someone with that kind of faith? Maybe right now, as you're facing all the challenges we face, you're, you're wishing you had a deeper faith, that, that you had a hope that could carry you through these dark times we're in. You might be joining us today as someone who is just starting to explore Christian faith, or, or maybe you don't believe at all. Maybe you're a Christian, but you don't really know what you believe. Maybe you've never admitted your doubts to anyone. How can you have more faith with all the anxiety and all the fears that we're experiencing right now during this pandemic? Well, first of all, you need to recognize that Jesus isn't condemning doubt here. He isn't telling Thomas that he shouldn't have doubts when he says, stop doubting and believe. In Mark chapter 9, the parent of a sick child comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. That is where all true prayer starts. That is where a relationship with God begins, if it begins at all. We don't celebrate doubt and we don't condemn it either. Rather, we recognize that doubt and fear can keep at us at a distance from each other and from God. So Jesus comes close because he wants us to turn to him. He invites us to do that, to change our minds. The Bible calls that repentance. And it's a way that leads to life, to renewal, to hope. Would you consider taking a step towards Jesus today by choosing to trust him, even a little? What does that look like, you might be asking yourself? Well, it looks like listening. Have you given God a hearing? 
Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Gospels, these four biographies of Jesus? No matter what your doubts may be about Christianity, if you read the Gospels, you will get to know Jesus. He will meet you there. If you're not listening to Jesus, if you're not reading Scripture, how can you expect to have faith, to grow in your faith? The second thing you can do is stay with others when you have doubts. Thomas didn't believe, but he didn't leave either. If you're thinking about coming back to faith or if you're trying to find it for the first time, I want to encourage you to make this a habit. Tune in every week to our online service. Come and meet with us together in person when we can do that again. Join a small group. We have online groups that you could be a part of. I was at my first online neighborhood group meeting this week. It was a meeting of those of us who live in a certain part of Guelph because we're, we're trying to cultivate uh, relationships right where we live so that we can reach out to others, to our neighbors, and help people, people who need help, who are isolated, who can't get out. It was so good to hear people's voices and to see their faces as part of that meeting. Um, Justin and I agreed afterwards that it was a blast. We had a ton of fun doing that. And it was also really meaningful, especially with things the way they are today, to be able to read God's word together and to pray together. Was it awkward? Yes. Did the technology do the trick? Kind of. But I left that meeting feeling like it was the best possible way I could have spent that hour. And meeting together like that, or however you're able to do it, with others who are people of faith, who can encourage you, is preparing us for the party when we're reunited again. And Tony Beer and I get to do the man hug once more in the flesh. Oh, what a happy day that will be. This Easter, I want to encourage you to find whatever way you can to spend time with other people who can say, we have seen the Lord. After opening a locked door and opening a closed mind, the final way Jesus invites us into a relationship with God is by opening himself up to us and to the whole world. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that Jesus has wounds at this point, if you're familiar with these stories? At Easter, we celebrate the victory of God over death. After the resurrection, Jesus has a new body that can't be touched by suffering or by sickness, but he's still the crucified God. And so he shows his disciples his hands and his side. And then he invites Thomas to touch them. It's an invitation because if God came to us as an all-powerful, authoritative God, it wouldn't work. But if he only came to us as a human being, it also wouldn't work. Only a crucified God can make peace among us and between us and him. Only a wounded God can take away our fear and deal with our pride and our sinful self-centeredness like he did with Thomas. Do you see Jesus wounded for you? As the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to that, your faith is going to grow. 
You'll see the God of the universe and you'll see how he gave up everything for you. He is your Lord. He is your God. He is Lord of your life. And he loves you so much that he suffered and died to close the gap, to take away the distance that separated you from him, to come close to you so that you, in the end, could come home to him fully, completely, bodily, beautifully. That's the hope that we have thanks to Easter, thanks to the resurrection. Now, Thomas had one condition for belief. He said that if God gave him what he wanted, then he'd believe. All of us come to Jesus like that, negotiating, bargaining, asking for something. But that's us still keeping our distance, putting off faith, holding on to our independence, hedging our bets. In the end, what we see here is that Thomas drops his demands. He doesn't end up putting his hand inside the torn flesh of Jesus. Instead, he falls to his knees and he worships his Lord and his God. What's keeping you from doing that today? You don't need to be afraid. God invites you to bring all of your fear, all of your doubt, all of your suffering, and to share it with him. Would you believe in Jesus as your Lord and your God today? Would you accept his love and his forgiveness? We're going to have a moment of silence now, and I would invite you, wherever you are, to pray that God would come close to you, would give you more faith. Let's do that now. Lord, we believe. We want to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our doubts, in our pride, in our insistence on getting our own way, our confidence that we know best. Lord, in this time of fear, when so much is being taken away from us, help us to see the truth of what really matters, what really lasts, what is really worth living for. Give us eyes to see you, Lord Jesus. Give us the hope of your resurrection. Christ, you are risen. Amen.